Hosea 6, 1-3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that the water, that water the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Okay. You're still staring at me, but. <laughs> um, okay, so I memorized ESV, so if it's different than what's in the bulletin, it's not because I'm messing up. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> okay, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again for all. No longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let sin not reign, therefore, in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I'm thankful Rachel did that here and Morgan Grace Sharp did it at Luda Lake today. If you're interested in working on memory, memory work, you can do it without reciting it. The reciting sometimes is an inducement to actually work at it and then have a, an exam, as it were, which is encouraging to everyone else. Our hope in urging people to memorize the scriptures in, a, in an attention economy like ours where everyone's vying for yours is to give you a reason to loiter with this ancient but powerful book that has words of life for spurring. And most of us won't accidentally do it. So thank you, Rachel, for spurring us on. Hopefully there's some benefit that has accrued to you from doing it. Plus, God will like you more. Not really. Let's pray. Father, it is... 
encouraging to me to see people in our congregation, like Rachel, like Morgan, and like many others who have been, who are trying to set your word to memory. And, of course, we memorize things that are important to us. And we would like your words to be treasured. The apostle assures the Colossians that he is laboring with all your energy that so powerfully works within him. And his purpose is that the church might be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they might know with complete understanding the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, that sounds so lovely. To think that Christ is the treasure store of all wisdom and all knowledge, that there is something that is so remarkably fantastic about knowing God that it would be the most worthwhile endeavor to pursue. The only thing is, is it feels off from us sometimes. So we're asking right now as we come to this book of Romans that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better that you might awaken dead places in us, that you might occupy a headspace in us that is easily allured to any and everything besides you, that you might rouse us from our slumber and from our sleepwalking through this world. Lord, you have made us for yourself. Let us find the joy, the allurement of knowing you better because we listened to this sermon, because we worshiped here today because we were here. Now you be here in a special way. Amen. Baseball is a highbrow sport, much like tennis or golf. You've probably realized this, that the attire required for baseball is much like what would be required at Wimbledon or say at the Masters, you'd have to dress a certain way. Have you ever been to a baseball game? I'm lying about all of that, except when it comes to Dixie Youth Baseball, where years ago, something awful happened. See, Dixie Little Boys School. This rule said that coaches of little boys, 7, 8 years old, or 9 and 10 years old, or 11, 12 years old, could be at the state tournament in an elegant uh, metroplexes such as Rockwood, Tennessee, and, and Lincoln County, Tennessee, uh, on fields made of dirt uh, with uh, chain-link fences and lots of uh, chewing gum on the ground and paper cups wadded up, that you could dress with khaki pants, say, and a collared shirt, you know, like a grown-up. You could dress like a grown-up to coach your team so long as you all wore the same thing because it is very important in baseball, in this highbrow sport, this upper echelon sport that you be decked out and you look really good. And so something awful happened, though. The authorities had laid out this, this ruling, and a few guys decided to decide for themselves, oh, we can wear shorts? then I'm going with the cargos, baby. Cargo shorts, cut-off shorts, camouflage shorts in case we have to kill something along the way. And for whatever reason, this 
this humiliating act of wearing inappropriate shorts and uncollared shirts, humiliation that they just too much for Dixie youth to bear. And so the humiliation that they felt from the, this austere game of baseball just being defamed by cargo shorts meant that the humiliation was then going to be spread to everyone as a punishment. They said, from here on out, grown men will dress like children. Like, they will wear pajamas. They will look like they are ready for bed. Like they are out for Halloween. Because grown men, large men, will wear tent-like polyester pants in a thousand degree heat and a skin tight jersey the same as a nine year old. That's the rule. You're gonna humiliate us. We're gonna let everybody share in the humiliation so grown men are gonna wear the same uniforms as their little kids. Now, I only know two people who look good in a baseball uniform that are grown men Marshall and Coach Simons here. I'm just saying. You don't want to see me in a baseball uniform. It's like a prank. But I don't know who the prank is on. It kind of like humiliates everyone at the same time. And that's what Paul says Adam and Eve did. They wore cargo shorts and they violated God's intention. They said, we'll decide for ourselves and the humiliation and the, the sin of it, it spread to everybody so that everybody got in on it. That's what Paul was saying in the last chapter. We haven't been there in two weeks. That as in Adam all sinned, his action, his action of rebellion, his action of humiliation, his action of being self-consciously aware and then stuck with the penalty of death has now spread like a virus to everyone. You can't get out of it. You're now like children who in the 60s and humid places where there were lots of mosquitoes and there were these DEET trucks, these DDT trucks that would just blow clouds of insecticide and the kids would run behind it and throw their hands up and, and breathe it deep because they did not have the internet. And now that's what hangs over human life is this cloud of DDT that everybody's breathing in. Death reigns, we're told, because of the sin of is born into it. But, Paul says, there was a commercial break and when we came back, it looked like everything was over, but Christ stepped in and he blew away the cloud and he, he took on all the toxins and the death of it and raised again. And now he has spread that life to anyone who will entrust themselves. That when Adam acted, there were a whole lot of people tethered to him and affected by him. And when Christ acted, everybody who trusts him was associated with what he did, the beauty of his life that now ripples through the lives of those who believe in him. The, the loveliness of his actions, the, the wonders of his speech, the elegancies of his sacrifice have accrued now 
to us. And Paul is continuing this argument, helping us understand just how much this is the case. And I'm not going to be able to go through all of it, but I'm going to focus on the main part of what he's saying. He asks the question that he assumes they'll ask when they've heard him say that you are now right with God based entirely if God another. And the obvious question that is, what do you mean? You're saying, if God gives us most, when we deserve it least, then we ought to just be as bad as possible so God will do as much good to us as possible. And Paul says, that means you've understood what I've said. And that's important. If you understand the Gospels, and you understand the Gospel, and this announcement of what Christ has done in his reign, you will understand and have moments where you say, this seems too good to be true. This sounds like it doesn't matter at all what I do, because what Christ has done has been definitive for me. And when you say that, you'll realize, yes, that's right. But so the people say, what, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase if God gives us most when we deserve at least? Shall we just keep on doing worse and worse and worse and trying God's patience so that he'll do more and more and more to us? And Paul says, no, okay, let's get a clarification. Something has happened to you. Not just something that happened out there, which is very important, but something also happened in here because you were baptized into Christ. It's changed your identity. Your, your faith in him and the, and the symbol of this that you live into called baptism means that your life is now wrapped up entirely in another. So your question is actually ill-conceived. You know, there are that's the questions, just stupid people. Wait. That's a joke. And so what he's urging us to realize is that this question of shall we just sin and sin because more and more grace will come betrays a lack of understanding about something central about being connected to Christ, about being tethered to his life. And if you'll go back for a second to the description I had about being forced several years ago, I didn't have to do it this year, being forced several years ago, for several years to wear a child's baseball uniform and finding it humiliating. I don't think Dixie Youth was actually trying to punish us. I think they were trying to uphold the high fashion standards of baseball. I don't understand. No one ever explained that to me. But the fact that I was humiliated says something. It says something about some place I've not yet gotten to. And I'm probably alone in that. Most of you don't care what you wear when you go out and you don't look in any mirrors. But the fact that I was humiliated was a sign that I was, I'm living in Adam. That I'm, I'm swirling around in a life of death where I'm preoccupied self. That's actually what sin is. Oswald Chambers has famously said that sin is the right the essence of sin is my claim to my right to myself. It's this claim that I have the right to decide for myself, to choose for myself, to define myself. And it is the dogma of Western civilization, as Barry Schwartz would say in his TED Talk, 
and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Justices Kennedy and Sotir and O'Connor said this, freedom is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That that's what freedom is. The freedom that we have as Americans, as Westerners, as people, is the right to decide our own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of human life, but that's all. You don't get to decide about anything else about that, but that. Just everything else. You get to decide for yourself what everything is, and that's what being free is. So really smart because it sings. And we all do too. Because as soon as this virus, this cloud of death came over, people became very aware of themselves, and that's a sign of sin. I am the center. All eyes are on me. The world is a mirror. It's the thing that makes us anxious. It's the thing that makes us feel judged. This pressure we feel to come through in the world and we don't make it and we blame ourselves. And Paul is saying, look here. Here's how you can think of yourself. Because your, your tendency is going to be, as American people, he's not talking to Americans, but as American Western people in our time, your tendency is going to be to think of yourself according to yourself. To come up with who you are. To define your own existence. And Paul says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a way to think about yourself. And it's actually going to be a much helpfuler way. And helpfuler is a word. I'm going to give you a way to think about yourself that actually frees you from yourself. I'm going to give you a way to think about yourself that actually helps you become a self. And it's going to be exactly opposite of how you tend to think of it. And as you go down here, you realize this is what he says. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 11. This is how you're to think of yourself. Christ Jesus. Self, dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Other translations would say, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourself, consider yourself, think about yourself, reckon yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, what does that mean? That sounds kind of lovely. How do you think of yourself as dead to sin? Five years ago, I went on sabbatical. And this was a sabbatical that was gifted to me by the congregation. The session said, you can take this. You are freed from responsibilities. You don't have to do anything. You are to rest. You are to be replenished. You are to be freed from your duties. So at the beginning of this sabbatical, I felt a great deal of responsibility. I was worried constantly, thinking, Oh, I need to tell them about this. I need to tell the elders about this situation. This particular administrative issue needs some attention. I need to tell them what I know about this. I need to share my encyclopedic knowledge about all things with these people. I need to divulge the, the, the full breadth of elders, compassionate shepherding knowledge to our elders. And I felt irresponsible not to do it and I was constantly plagued with this and one day I can remember being on the Covenant College trails about to 
run. I call it running, but you might not if you saw it. You might stop and ask if I need help, and I wouldn't, but I, you know, you never know. And I was talking to my friend and, and co-elder Scott Jones, and I was telling him, you guys need to know about this, and you need to know about this, and you need to know about this. And he said, you know, those are all right. That's all good. That's right. Those are all good things, he said to me, like he's talking to a child. Uh, just kidding. But he said, those are all good, but I just sort of think that if we can't handle this while you're gone, then there's what the po- what's the point? Like, in other words, can you just relax for a minute and let us be grown-ups, and we'll take care of this, and you be off like we've instructed you to be? We have given you the authority. By our authority, we've said, you don't have any responsibilities here right now. And so, I pondered this, because it was hard to believe. Because I kept feeling po- responsibilities pop up in me. Oh, I need to act on this. I need to re- tell them about this. I need to respond to this. I need to take care of this real quick. And it occurred to me, if suddenly I died, this sounds more morbid they were at the time, if suddenly I died, I wouldn't be able to take care of any of this stuff. They would just have to do it. If I just dropped dead, the elders would have to just, everybody would just have to carry on without me here. Oh, gone it. So I did, did this. Here's how I was able to actually profit from a sabbatical. I pretended like I was dead. Only in one respect. I was dead to my responsibilities to the church. That was the only way I could do it. That's the only way I could be free is to say I'm dead to this because an authority told me I was, and so I trusted them that I didn't have to give attention to it. I didn't have to be answerable to it. I didn't have to listen to the persuasion of it. I was dead to it. It was dead to me. By pretending I was dead, I actually got to be alive to the sabbatical. The apostle says, when you, as a baptized person, and see, Presbyterians don't even think of themselves as baptized persons, but you ought to. One of the main ways you ought to think about yourself is that you're baptized. That you baptized into Christ. You belong to Christ. He's the main thing about you, which means that his death counts for you and his life counts for you. That's what Paul says. And one of the rules about sinning is if you die, you don't sin. He's saying because it has no power over you anyway. That's what Paul says here. And so he's saying because Christ died and you were tethered to him, you're dead. The penalty that was on you has been paid. The wages of your sin has been exhausted. That's the, the pension plan for you now is eternal life, not death. So now, sin is not your master. You have been raised with Christ so that you may live a new life. You can count yourself dead to sin by the authority of God through his apostle who said, you do not have to answer to the claims to yourself. You do not have to answer to the claims to define yourself, to decide for yourself, to be as God. You don't have to answer that. You are dead to sin. Now you may live a new life, alive to God. Now, sin, though, is like like cats and mayonnaise, which is to say awful. And let me, that bears some explaining, probably. It may stand by itself as self-evident, but you can think of 
yourself as dead to sin, which means it doesn't have mastery over you. You don't have to listen to it. Paul says, don't the power in the cup of your mortal body so you obey its de- evil desires. He's saying you actually have the power and the capacity now not to merely give in to desires. You can disobey yourself. You actually have the power to do that, you who are in Christ. You have the power to say no to that so you may say yes to him. But just because these things are dead to you doesn't mean that they don't make their appearance in your life. If you hate cats or do not understand why they exist or why God created them or or how they could be part of God's good creation, here's what you can be assured of. Cats will come to you. They will rub up against you. If you hate them, they will rub themselves against your leg. If you despise them and are allergic to them, they will jump up into your lap with their slithery, nasty, hairy bodies and make weird sounds. (laughs) If they make you sick, they will impose themselves on you. I don't understand this is one of the paradoxes of the universe. So I am, by my reckoning, cats are dead to me. Mayonnaise is dead to me. I don't understand that either. But people slide it into things. They put it into food, hoping you'll eat a trick. I don't know. I don't know if it's like a a death wish they have for you, or they just want to make you sick, or they want to play a trick. I don't know. But it's another one of these things I just don't understand. And I'm not saying that this is scriptural, but it probably is. But see, these things will come at you whether you want them or not. And it's actually quite encouraging when you think about this because when Paul tells me and he tells you, you're dead to sin. You died to the, the, the essence, this claim on your own life, this, this power that keeps you allergic to God. You died to it. It doesn't have power over you anymore. My, my first question is, well, if that's the case, then why does he have to tell us? Like, wouldn't we just know? If, all, if God said, you may run fast, wouldn't I just be able to run fast and know? Like, hey, I can run fast. But Paul has to explain to us, when he says we're dead to sin, he says actually so that it doesn't have you in slavery anymore. You don't have to let it reign in your mortal body by offering your, yourself to obey its evil desires. In a couple of chapters, he's going to tell you his own struggle with this. That being freed from the preeminence of sin in his life doesn't mean he's freed from the presence of sin in his life. So actually, one of the great uh, sometimes today in thinking of yourself as a baptized person means that you are probably also a sometimes conflicted person. Christians are going to have more warring and more conflict within than non-Christians by far. Because we have this part of us that wants to do what we want to do. We have this part of us, in fact, that sometimes does things that we wish we wouldn't do. If any of you have had the grace of being addicted to something before, you'll realize there are things in your life that you do that you can't not do that you hate, and yet you keep doing it. You can't stop, and you wish you could stop, but you can't stop. That's what it feels like. You have that tendency going on, and at the same time, you have this tendency that says, but I don't want to be captive to this. 
I want to be awake to God. I want to do what God wants. I want to love other people. I don't want to be ruled by my jealousy of my workmate. I want to be filled with goodwill towards the good that has happened in their lives. I don't want to be stingy and fearful about money. I want to be generous to other people. I don't want to be condemnatory about people who are different than me. I want to move toward people that I think of as other or different. I don't want to be this way. Paul would say when he's risen to a new life, that part of that new life is this fight where there is a choice to be made. Am I offering myself to myself to sin? Or am I offering myself to God? You'll be attacked. You'll have attacks in your own head and in your own thoughts. We live in a time where patient autonomy seems a good thing to the medical establishment. Barry Schwartz has a great TED talk about this. Schwartzman, Schwartz. And he says, people who are experts, like doctors, they'll tell us, here are your options. You can do A, and here are the benefits or dangers. Here you can do B. Here are the benefits or dangers. And we say, well, what would you do? And he said, well, here are the benefits. A or B if you do this, and A or B if you do this. What would you do if you were me? I'm not you. Because patient autonomy in the West is very important. And you know that. If a doctor's ever told you to do something, even if he told you to do something, you'd say, well, we'll see. I'm gonna, let me go check the interwebs and see what Jenny McCartney had to say about it. She used to be in Playboy. She knows a lot about medical stuff. Wait, what? But we have this thing where we think we know better than all people. And Paul says, you don't have to listen to that thing. Listen to Christ. You're dead to sin. You can be alive to God. And here's the reality of your life. Now, will you live in that reality? And here's how you live in it. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Paul is making this sound like he's saying, here's your identity. You don't define yourself. You're someone who has died, and now you're becoming a self in Christ, in a new life. The way you find this new life is you, you ignore yourself and you look to Christ. You're alive to him. And it starts each day, each morning, where you get to say, as I'm living this new life, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. I offer myself to you. One of the hugest ways, I think, in our times that we are alive to God is through the attention that we pay him. I would think that most of us, as I said earlier, have a primary problem with faith, not because of gross sin, but because of gross You just spend any free moment you've got scrolling through pictures of things. Because at the end of your life, you want to be able to look back and you say, look at how many political tirades I read on Facebook and how many pictures of other people's breakfasts I liked. I was the image of God. 
and I liked a lot of scrambled eggs and fancy smoothies. Pictures of them, that is. You have a lot of people in your world who are really much smarter than you are, who are hoping that you will look at your phone 300 times a minute if that's possible. That's just the aspiration. And so there's a great opportunity for you just not ever even to think about God or to think about your neighbor, except as a, someone to envy or to feel judged by because they're director, uh, because they're, you know, their showcase online seems so much better than your drab life. I sent a picture this week of a book I saw called Coffee with Jesus. Coffee with Jesus, I just saw this book. It was hilarious to me. It just, it had a bunch of pictures, cartoons, and one of them had this picture of Jesus, what, you know, because hilarity of it, too. You had a big coffee mug, and it, I, I can't describe the hilarity of it to you, but it was hilarious to me. And um, I sent it to a few pastor friends. If you're looking for a, a spiritual book study for your church, this might be helpful, Coffee with Jesus. Um, it was tongue-in-cheek. And someone wrote back and said, yes, this would be a part of the continuation of Jesus' sufferings on the earth to have to have coffee with posh decadents like us who spend $5 a cup on coffee and we would sit around the table and everyone would just be looking at their phones. Plus, Jesus hates coffee, so that would only add to his suffering. I thought that was hilarious. But I also thought it was true. That you could be sitting there having coffee with Jesus and you might not even look up. Because there are a lot of glitzy pictures that are capturing your attention. And so one of the things we do is we, we just practice and make a point to give attention to God. His scriptures, in books, in prayer. And you know what happens when you start giving attention to God and, he, and you become more and more alive to him? He starts becoming more and more alive in all the parts of your life. That's how this thing works. That's what's so exciting about it, is that you will worship and think, go out into your world without any prayer, without the scriptures, without Christian fellowship, and think, man, my belief is bigger than ever. I'm more expectant in the risen Christ to show up at my workplace than ever. I have a profound sense of my sense of calling as I work at this insurance company and, and process a claim. I've never felt more like I'm doing God's will than when I'm answering the phone and making a sales call. These things never just occur to you. But if you give yourself at the beginning of the day, if you give yourself at times in the week and say, Lord, I want to be an instrument of your righteousness, you'll start seeing God showing up all over the place. You'll start thinking of your work, whatever your work happens to be, is an opportunity to serve people and to love them and to bring honor to God in, in profound ways. It'll, it'll transform what your 8 to 5 work is or your 8 to 6 or 7 or ever how long you work. It'll help in practical, mundane things. You come alive to God. You start paying attention to God. And then all of a sudden, there will be things like you have a, say you have a, a GMC car, which is a, God have mercy on this CAD. Um, we have one, and its perennial problem is that it has problems that are unfixable. So you take it to the shop, and they say, yep, this, they don't ever know. Broken. Love you. 
They don't ever know how to fix it. Yeah, the computer sniffer says you've got a problem with the friction washing, but there's no telling what it is. And it's like, yes, I had hoped to have a car like this. It could never be repaired, but was constantly in need of it. And the other day I thought, hey, I'll pray to the living Christ for this irreparable car that I need to work because I have to do stuff. Lord, show me. How do we get this car fixed? What shall I do? The thought came to me, check to see what the oil level is. It had a problem that wasn't consistent with low oil. It had low oil. I put it in. The car's been fine. I've gone 8,000 miles since my last paid repair. It's a miracle. Or you might have situations. See, it's just a mundane thing. You start to think, I'm alive to God, and so I'm dependent on, so he's involved in, he's involved in mundane things, and it, I'm expecting him to be, and so are you. Or you find a friend who's, you overhear in a conversation struggles and trouble in their lives, and you, and you reach out. This happens to me from time to time. I, recently, a teacher, I don't have much to do with it all from high school, and I, I just overheard him saying something, and I, I wrote him. I wrote him a prayer, and the next time he saw me, he said, you wouldn't believe it. Old, he's dying. came at just the right time. My mother is in the hospital. My father's been told he's dying. It's just been an awful week. And I came, and I got your email with a prayer, and it was just perfect. The words were, were perfect, and it became an opportunity to show him that God was alive to him. I didn't know. Being alive to God makes God start being alive to you in all kinds of situations. You start to expect, and even in your griping. So I drove my 8,000th mile this month home from Knoxville for the fourth time this, in two days. In the rain, I did this thing, and I think I'm not embellishing. I went, this rain. Thank you, Lord. I just grumbled about the rain because I was just, I just had it with the rain. And I then said to my son, who was the only audience member in the car, besides the Lord himself, and I said, but I have to remind myself that the Lord sent the rain. This is how I walk myself back from the grumbling is that the Lord, to whom I'm alive, this Lord is alive. And He's the one who's nourishing the earth with this rain. He knows better than I do. He's smarter than I am. He, he supplies us with these things. It walks me back from my griping. It helps in the practical Christ to be on the scene and all kinds of service opportunities. It even helps in the practical exigencies of life. When you are alive to God, he starts being alive everywhere you are. So Paul says, that's how you ought to think of yourself. As a baptized person whose identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And that's the main thing about you, which means sin has no hold on you anymore, even though it's going to be present in your life. And now you can be alive to God to live a new life. So ask him to let that new life come out. If you've seen these videos of little children who've been born deaf, and they get a cochlear implant, Cochlear, cochlear, you can correct me later. And all of a sudden, for the first time in their lives, they hear their mother's voice. They felt her touch. They've been close to her embrace. But they hear her voice. Johnny? 
this little baby who's sucking like Maggie on a pacifier. He don't care about that anymore. It drops out of his mouth and his face lights up and his eyes are perked with attention in his mouth. His voice held with awe as he hears for the first time his mother's voice coming to him. And that's the only thing that matters. It drowns out everything, this sweetness coming into his ear canals. And Paul would say, oh, Christian people, consider yourselves dead to God and alive to the one who has spoken you awake. Give attention to him. Give attention to him and the other things won't have so much allure. Give attention to him and he'll seem alive to you everywhere. Give attention to him. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And you might just have a smile of awe on your face as well. Amen.